0: games in some form has sustained and entertained humanity for millennia. It would be impossible of course to label one form of game as the first game ever. Humans may have supplemented the boredom of finding food or water and turned it into a game. In my mind, I am imagining a Legolas and Gimli-esque battle to kill the most wild animals to bring them back home to eat. But what we do see in human prehistory is a constant need for both games and play. Things we can play with very little effort against one another or ourselves. As both a brain teaser and a source of competition, games have changed and developed for social and economic reasons. Gaming encompasses a vast array of things. From dice, board games, cards and video games, gaming is a constant part of humanity and yet a never-ending part too. Some games remain the same for centuries, yet the way you play them changes. Some change constantly, but the way you play it stays similar. Chess has remained the same for centuries, but an 18th century game would look very different to today. Yet however, everybody plays Pac-Man in the same way as they did 30 years ago. In this episode, we will look at the history and the development of a variety of games and gaming. From dice to board games, chess, cards and finishing off with video games, it should be a fairly comprehensive look at the history of gaming. So we start with dice, or is it die? Well after spending a good 30 minutes trying to work it out, I can tell you die is the singular form of dice. Oddly I thought it was the other way around, but anyway, dice is one of the oldest forms of gaming, perhaps the oldest. They have been found dating to at least 8,000 years ago when they were made of animal bone. In most places, they weren't gambling, but religious in practice. They weren't for gambling, but religious, and dice have been found independently created in many different places. The shamans used dice to interpret signs from the gods. The transition from this to gambling is all speculation, but interesting nonetheless. According to David Schwartz, quote, The line between divination and gambling is blurred. One hunter, for example, might say to another, If the bones land short side up, we will search for game to the south. If not, we look north. After the hunt, the hunters might cast bones to determine who would go home with the most desirable cuts. Around 7,000 years ago, in Mesopotamia, they carved down the side of dice so they looked more cube-like, and it could land on one of six sides, allowing for more complex outcomes. As time moved on, the dice were increasingly made of ivory, wood, and whalebone. Around 3,000 years ago, dice were featured in the royal game of Ur, which we'll get onto later in this episode. This game used a four-sided dice. By the first millennia, dice had spread to most of the great civilizations. It can be found in Mesoamerica, China, Rome, Greece and India, along with Mesopotamia. In Rome, the most common item was a 20-sided dice. After the fall of Rome, dice continued to be used throughout the Middle Ages. It was cheap and reliable, and as a form of entertainment, could be used by the peasants and upper classes alike. By the 12th century in China, they flattened out the dice to create dominoes, which are basically flat dice. Dice was so popular in medieval Europe that Chaucer wrote in the Canterbury Tales that, quote, they dance and play at dice both day and night, close quotes. The Catholic Church, being the fun police, tried to ban all dice games, calling them forms of gambling. But the Catholic Church bans, as with its modern-day prohibitions against anything vaguely enjoyable, did not work, and people continued to play dice. Dice games now are somewhat out of fashion. Most often they have been mixed with board games to be a part of them. Which gets us neatly onto our next topic, board games. Board games have been played for millennia, and in this new world of smartphones and technology, you might have thought they'd have fallen out of fashion but it's been the exact opposite. Board games are now high fashion, with board game cafes popping up all over the world. Born in South Korea, in 2004, there were 130 board game cafes in Seoul alone, and this spread all over Southeast Asia. Most board game cafes have the same basic structure. You pay a small fee for an hour's play, and then play any of the hundreds of board games they have. Board game sales reached 7 billion pounds in 2016 and continues to grow. The mix of nostalgia, playing with friends and a move away from the digital world is something many millennials do secretly pine more for. It's like a Playstation but it's real life. So we start our journey of board games with a game from the ancient city of Ur founded in 4000 BC in modern-day southern Iraq. When this city was excavated, it was found there was a board game they used to play in the Royal Cemetery. Later called the Royal Game of Ur, in the 1980s at the British Museum, there was a forgotten tablet which had inscribed on it the game, and it began to be translated, and it was found how to play the game. It was a race game, with players competing to get from left to right by rolling the dice. The game was mixed in with spiritual advice on the board. The game some believe has stayed with us, though adapted beyond its original, recognisable form into backgammon. However, what we do know is that people were still playing some form of Ur after the Second World War before it started to die out. The line from Ur to backgammon is convoluted and not entirely clear, however, there is a succession of games from Er to Backgammon that hint at some kind of direct line between them. From Er to Senat, an Egyptian game with many such copies around ancient Egyptian tombs, including one in Tutankhamun's tomb. From there to Ludus Duodiceum scriptorum, as the Roman version was called, and played throughout the Roman Empire. After some changes to the game, it was called tabula. The Latin word for board. Both versions were extremely popular and the game was found carved into the courtyards of many villas in Pompeii. Roman emperors were hooked on the game with Caligula being described as a cheat, Claudius writing a book on it, Domitian being an expert and Nero spending fortunes gambling on it. Tabula went all over the empire to Britain where it was called tables. When Rome fell, so did the game. Later, the Crusades resulted in East meets West, and the game was rediscovered. Where it was so popular, Richard I of England and Philip II of France issued a joint decree banning the game from normal soldiers and capping the money knights and clergy could bet on it. The game was revived in the Middle Ages, with everybody playing the table and the game getting a mention in the Canterbury Tales. Like Dice again, the Catholic Church didn't like the game, and persuaded France to ban the game, though most people ignored this once again. There were many variations of this game all over Europe, but the British changed the game slightly, making it easier to bet on. The British called this new game Backgammon, and Edmund Hoyle chronicled the game and codified it. This game spread throughout the English and later British Empire and beyond. Thomas Jefferson was a known player, as was Horatio Nelson, who was chastised because members of his fleet spent too much time playing the game. By the 20th century, the game fell out of favour again. Bridge and Whist were far more popular. But then a new innovation took hold of the game of Bathgammon, the doubling cube. It was the doubling cube's job to keep track of how many times the original bet had been doubled. You either had to accept the stake being doubled, or concede the game. Nobody knows where the cube came from, but it seems to have been invented in an American backgammon club in the 1920s. But when the Great Depression hit, nobody fancied like gambling anymore. By the 1960s, backgammon wasn't just dead, but a joke. The spinach of indoor sports, it was called. But then out of nowhere, backgammon suddenly became fashionable again. Prince Alexis Obolinsky, as his name suggests, was part of the Russian aristocracy, who fled after the Russian Revolution. He wound up in Istanbul, where the game was played a little more, and he learnt it from a gardener. As he reached adulthood, Oblensky moved to New York, and was an active part of Manhattan's Russian community. He was a playboy living it up with women and gambling. By the Second World War, he was a real estate agent in Florida, before travelling around the US, encouraging gambling clubs to play backgammon. By the 1960s, it still seemed like a long shot. Things began to change when Oblensky got a call about the opening of the Lucian Beach Hotel in the Bahamas. Whereupon the owner asked Oblensky to persuade a group of backgammon players to come for a big money game. Oblensky found 32 players and he called the tournament the International Backgammon Tournament. The group of socialites, millionaires and stockbrokers was a great success. By the end of the tournament Oblensky was already plotting a second. The next tournament had 64 players and in 1966 the event was held in London. The game was high profile, with James Goldsmith and Lord Lucan already regulars by now. Aristotle Onassis and James Bond producer Albert Broccoli were famous faces too. By 1967, Backgammon went to the Las Vegas Caesars Palace. The success of Backgammon spread all over the world, to the most fashionable and fancy areas. Monaco, Athens, Miami, Rio, London and Vienna. The first English-language book was written by and Ted James, and sold hundreds of thousands of copies. By the 1970s, Hollywood stars got in on the act, with Roger Moore, Michael Caine and Joan Crawford playing, while Kevin Keegan, Jimmy Connors and Larry Bird represented the sports stars. Hugh Hefner hosted backgammon parties and became the centre for backgammon amongst the rich and beautiful. There's a great photo of Mick Jagger and Bill Wyman playing the game. By the middle of the 1970s, it was the most popular board game. Abercrombie & Fitch dedicated an entire page of his 1974 Christmas catalogue to the game, while high luxury fashion brands began to offer luxury sets. It took Oblensky only 10 years to get his wish to bring back Backgammon. The 1977 Backgammon World Championships in Monaco saw a half a million dollars of prize money. But by now, the game became awash with Middle Eastern oil billionaires and the stakes would easily see $50,000 on normal games. And the game started to lose fashion with the arrival of these oil billionaires. They were betting so much money, it drew out the ordinary rich people and the arrival of professional players onto the scene which meant that their mathematical approach to the game resulted in the stars losing entertainment value. The pros played a lot slower, won a lot more, and backgammon lost its playboy reputation. Backgammon still has its world championships, but the jet-setters moved onto poker as the game of choice. Internet poker made poker even more popular in the 1990s and 2000s. But backgammon still had its moment in the sun in the middle of the 20th century. But with poker and the amount of professional players now, I think we'll have something of a similar fate to backgammon. Assuming, of course, something arrives to replace it. So now we get to the most hated, most loved and most played board game of them all. The United States in 1877 was not a happy place. Normal people worked awful hours for low pay, while the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts of the world raped in the money. J.P. Morgan was the image of the age with his white handlebar mustache, tux, and top hat. Economist Henry George thought he had a better answer. In 1879, he wrote a book called Progress and Poverty. The book argued that the rich extracted money from owning God-given land and the government should take the money back by issuing a land value tax. This could then mean that income tax was abolished, allowing people to keep all the money from the proceeds of their labor. The book became a bestseller, and the single tax became a movement across the United States. Elizabeth Meiji was one of those. A modest woman, she had a patent for a device that allowed paper to be fed into typewriters more easily she became a disciple of George, and tried to keep his dream alive and popularize it. In this end, she created a board game to demonstrate his arguments. The Landlord Game in 1902 was created, and was supposed to demonstrate the harm monopolistic landlords cause, and how land value tax was the cure. Can you see where this is going? In the game, the players travel around the board and use paper money to buy land, railways and utilities and then charge rent on anybody landing on it. Other squares require you to pay tax or pick up a change card. In one corner there was a jail and the final square was a public park. The core game where players sought to get rich from owning land and the schadenfreude inherent in taking other people's money, you believed, would make them understand the unfairness of the capitalist system. Meiji patented her game in 1904 and began making hand copies for other believers. One found its way to Arden, Delaware, where it was something of a success. And Scott Nearing, an economics professor at the University of Pennsylvania, thought the game would be great for teaching his students about rent gouging and began to use the game. He didn't know the name and so called it the anti-landlord game. His students thought Monopoly was a better title. The students all liked the game so much they began to make hand copies for themselves. Meiji offered in 1902 the game to Parker Brothers, but they didn't want it, saying it was too political and too complex. It was perhaps not unfair to say that. Games of the time were simple, and would involve reenacting Napoleon's conquest or racing games the game continued in low-level popularity and with the russian revolution americans were put off the idea of an anti-capitalist game which wasn't really fair criticism monopoly was never really anti-capitalist just pointing out the flaws of early 20th century capitalism the game continued to flourish in and around university campuses in the northeast of the united states It spread by word of mouth, a very old-fashioned way, and picked up converts. People would copy games from their friends and make it for themselves. The properties were often named after where the person who made it lived. And with the rise of the motor car, the public park became a free parking spot. In 1927, a game ended up at Daniel Layman's, a student at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. He introduced it to his friends and invented community chess cards after the real-life community chests that would collect money and give them away. Chance cards would move players around. Community chests would give you money. When Lehman graduated he convinced a local manufacturer to publish the game. Here it was called finance and the political elements were gone. The game didn't sell however and shops refused to stock it. For the same reason as Parker Brothers rejected it 20 years before. One person who liked finance was Ruth Hoskins, who played a handmade version of Monopoly and made her own version based on Atlantic City. She changed the fifth house you could buy on the property and made it into a hotel. She based the game from Atlantic City and this Atlantic City version spread to Philadelphia where Charles Todd and his wife played the game and liked it so much they made their own Atlantic City version. Todd would later meet an old school friend in Esther Jones who was married to Charles Darrow. Todd invited Jones and Darrow for a meal and ended up playing the game. Darrow was unemployed after the Depression and after the game asked Darrow and Todd to make him a copy. Todd did just that and once he got the game he never heard from Darrow again. Darrow now had the game, and one day Todd was walking down the street when he saw a poster saying that Darrow would be demonstrating his new game at a local bank. Darrow had added a lot to the game. He got an illustrator to add colours to the property spaces, and added illustrations. With the game enhanced, Darrow copyrighted the game and began making copies. After selling 100 handmade copies, he got it made professionally and persuaded Wanamaker's department store in Philadelphia to stock it. With them having it, more stores now began to stock it. Darrow sent the game back to the big publishers, who once again rejected it. But the stores in Philadelphia kept selling out and kept needing more copies. Now Parker Brothers took more of an interest. They decided to buy the game from Darrow and gave him a signing-on fee of $7,000, along with royalties. They asked if he was the sole inventor. He said he was. Parker Brothers added the trinkets and added more illustrations, including the mascot known to us as Mr. Monopoly, who looked very much like J.P. Morgan. The game now spread like wildfire, and nobody quite knew why. What is it about the game of Monopoly? Nobody really knows. It's at the same time the most popular board game of the 20th century, and the most hated board game of all time. Perhaps it was the more adult nature, or just the feeling of earning more money that entranced people during the Depression. Parker Brothers tried to patent the game, but realised it had already been patented. They gave Meiji $500, and was able to reduce Darrow's royalties. The game sold 250,000 by 1934 and enabled Darrow to retire. By 1936, the game was so popular, all other game production had to be halted so the Parker Brothers factories could pump out more copies. They tried hiking the price, but that didn't work. People kept on buying. They sold 1.75 million copies in 1936 alone. The game then caught attention of other countries. In December 1935, Waddington's, a card printing company in the UK, took notice and the company boss, Victor Watson, asked his son Norman to play it. Norman loved it and convinced his father he had to buy it. Making a £5 a minute call to New York, the first ever transatlantic call Parker Brothers received, convinced Parker Brothers they were dealing with a rich London company, despite them being just a card manufacturer. Parker Brothers sold Waddingtons the rights, along with permission to change the properties. Waddingtons had just assumed the Atlantic City setting was actually New York, and so made all the properties London-based. Perhaps a good job, because I don't think a British Monopoly, with the equivalent set in Blackpool, would have been quite as popular. The final Waddingtons change to the game was the property Angel Islington, not a street but the pub where the Waddingtons' executives had ended up after picking all the other names. The British version was hugely popular, and Waddingtons began to buy the rights to monopoly in Europe and the Commonwealth. The rest of the English-speaking world still uses the British version for this reason. In the decades since its release, it's become the best-selling game of all time, with 250 million copies sold. The game has now entered the lexicon and the street names of Monopoly have become world famous. In December, I was in London, and as private I would say, fairly tired and emotional, and ended up lost on the Strand. The first thing I thought about was Monopoly, and how Strand to me appeared red, because that's the colour it is in Monopoly. There are now all sorts of versions of Monopoly. Every city and almost every pop culture item has got a Monopoly version. It's like a rite of passage. The next board gaming tradition we'll look at is war gaming. War gaming probably has the most important legacy of any type of game. The Pearl Harbor attacks were all based from war gaming simulations, and much military planning has its roots in war gaming. The idea of using war gaming to simulate battles begins in 1559 when Count Reinhard Zuzons devised a card game to plan military formations. The Germans continued to experiment with enormous versions of chess with thousands of squares to try and mimic war scenarios. None of it really worked. A change came in 1780 with Johann Helwig who introduced squares onto a board to represent different types of terrain. But the big breakthrough was when George von Reiswitz of Prussia made 3D model board games with hills, rivers and forests. The board game was to scale and had a good imitation of soldiers travelling on foot. He called his game Kriegspiel, German for war game. Von Reiswitz introduced the game to friends and it ended up being shown to two sons of Friedrich Wilhelm III and von Reiswitz Was invited to the Royal Palace to demonstrate it a year later and he showed off numerous editions. Wilhelm III was impressed and began to hold Kriegsspiel parties. The game was played and played, but with most things the novelty wore off and the game passed to von Reiswitz the Younger, who changed the game to match the realities of war even more. This new version got the interest of the Prussian army who asked him to demonstrate it. The demonstration was met by most of the Prussian top officers. Prussian Chief of Staff Karl von Muffling declared it wasn't a game, but a war exercise. Versions for every regiment was ordered, and Kriegsfield became a training game for officers. By the 1850s, it was a vital planning tool, and when the Franco-Prussian War broke out, everybody saw what those countless hours spent the Kriegspiel table would demonstrate. The Prussians, or now the Germans, boasted about the game and its value, and the militaries began with their own versions. The US Navy in 1900 used Kriegspiel to simulate a clash with the Royal Navy. Alfred von Schlieffen, the chief of the German General Staff, began to use the game in 1897 to develop a new war plan. A fight against Russia and France at the same time could have been devastating to Germany and so he used the game to try and work out a way to win both battles. This strategy became known as the Schlieffen Plan, where France would be beaten before Russia could mobilise, and then the German war machine would be turned onto Russia. The mistake made was that the Russians mobilised quicker than expected. The invasion of Belgium brought Britain into the war, and the six weeks needed to conquer France was unrealistic. Interestingly, the Schlieffen Plan was basically resurrected by the Manstein Plan of 1940, with France being beaten in six weeks before the Germans turned onto the Russians. It's interesting to think that this war game arguably resulted in two world wars breaking out. Kriegspiel, however, was not for the average consumer. It was too complicated and had too much number crunching. H.G. Wells invented a game called Little Wars intended to be played with toy soldiers. It was intended to be an antidote to real warfare, but it didn't take off. Albert Lameracy, a French director created a board game called Conquest of the World during a family holiday. It had players warring against each other until only one army was left. The game was decided on dice rolls, with the lowest rolls losing a unit. Revisions kept on being made like the removal of a navy until it was published in France in 1957. The game soon landed at Parker Brothers who released it in America. They called it Risk and launched it in 1959. Risk soon became the hottest game despite its high price tag, with its simplicity. It was shunned by traditional war gamers, but entranced the casual with its fast pace, backstabbing, and immediacy. However, by the 1970s, it was replaced by a product of its own success. Dave Aronson and Gary Gygax wanted a game that had fantasy elements as well as wargaming elements. Inspired by Lord of the Rings, they envisaged a role-playing game where people take on the life of their heroes. Dungeons and Dragons, or D&D, became a standard which many people would try and copy, but few would succeed. Marvin Glass and Associates was set up by Marvin Glass, one of the biggest toy manufacturers of the 20th century. Glass's products were unique and often groundbreaking, so whenever he brought something out, the industry listened. With TV advertising being so popular, he wanted a game that could appeal over television, unlike Monopoly, which by the 1960s was old hat. So there was Glass in his office, Looking for inspiration, and they looked in a newspaper at a cartoon called How to Remove the Cotton Out of a Bottle of Aspirin. The cartoon was a humorous depiction of an overly elaborate contraption that solved a simple task. The sheer silliness of it attracted Bert Meyer, a company partner. How could they involve something like this into a game? Meyer suggested a mouse trap. They came back with the idea of a board game with an over-the-top mousetrap, and they began to plot out the rest of the game. The game would be a simple race game where players move mice around the board based on dice rolls. The game was rather dull, but the thrill of the mousetrap itself was enticing. Maya took the game around the traditional publishers. Parker Brothers once again rejected it before ideal toy bought it. Parker Brothers really needed to take a look at their talent scouting. Glass & Meyer started their game small in Pittsburgh with local TV advertising. But the game managed to sell 3 million copies in 12 months. It made Ideal Toy, a small company, turn into the third biggest game publisher in the United States. Everybody copied Mousetrap with plastic toys now standard in many games. The market was flooded with all of these types of plastic board games. The most successful was invented by John Spinello, a student who wanted to come up with an electronic game. He invented a game where, inside a metal box, there was a series of holes and a meandering groove. You had to insert a metal probe into the hole and guide it along a groove Spinello had cut. If the probe touched the side, a buzzer would sound. Spinello showed the game around and it found its way to Glass, who played it and after having some doubts was highly impressed. Glass offered Spinello $500 and a job after he graduated. The job never came about, but Glass turned the game into something more marketable. Initially it was called Death Valley, where you had to find water in cracks. Then a company executive from Melt Taft had a better idea. So they bought the rights and turned it into Operation. Like Mousetrap, Operation became a permanent fixture on the toy shelf. Still, board games were seen as something for children. Today I think it's more of an adult thing. The paradigm shift began with two games, Scrabble and Trivial Pursuit. Alfred Butts was unemployed as many Americans were around the time of the Great Depression. He was a big chess fan and always wanted to make his own game. After some research he decided there were three types of games, move games, number games and word games. He wanted his game to be half luck and half skill. He chose an anagram game where players could pull letters at random and have to create a word. At first he struggled with the idea of how to stop players ending up with a random group of words that prevented them coming up with another word. He solved it by mixing the letters to correspond with how often they appear. After going through newspaper articles, he jotted down the frequency of words. Butts counted 683 articles from the New York Times, and called his game Lexico, where you have to make 9 or 10 letter words. Eight months into his venture, he'd only sold 84 copies. Lexico was not good enough. So the first change was to add a board onto the game. He weighted the letters so the rarer letters got you more points, and also added double and triple word scores onto the board. It was 1938 before Butts finally finished the game. The sales came in drips, and it wasn't until 1947 a man called James Brunot contacted him out of the blue and asked to buy the rights. Butz sold him the rights and gave it a new name, Scrabble. Brunot put the game into production, but ran out of money to advertise it. By 1951, it still wasn't making money. So by 1952, he thought he might shut down the game for a few weeks, and went on holiday to Kentucky. When he came back, he was stung to see he had 2,500 orders for the game, and then next week. 3,000 orders. He never worked out where the sudden upshot of interest came from. His main theory was that Jack Strauss had played the game and his chairman of Macy's had ordered them to his store. Like we've seen before, the game from that single point took off. By 1954, nearly 4 million Scrabble sets had been sold. Brunot was equally surprised when there were arguments over what were words. Brunot didn't care, but many dictionary companies had been vying to be the official dictionary. Eventually he approved the release of an official Scrabble word guide. 3,000 words, all in a list. Brunot sold the game in the 1970s for $1 million. The game was a huge success and proved that games could be for adults as well as children. The story of Trivial Pursuit comes directly from Scrabble as Chris Hanley and Scott Abbott agreed that Scrabble was a very expensive game and that the people who made it must have earned a fortune, which James Brunot did. They thought if they made their own game they could make a fortune too. The two discussed what type of game they could make. They came up with a quiz game because nobody had yet made a good one. 45 minutes later and they had a prototype, a trap that looked like a ship's wheel and six categories, arts and literature, entertainment, geography, history, science and nature and sports and leisure. They wanted this game to be for adults and not for children. They looked at all their quiz books for questions. After raising money, after two years they produced 1,000 copies of the game. This meant they could only sell the game for $75. Nobody was going to buy it for that amount. This was at the time video games were taking off in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The Victorian artwork of the product, too, was not seen to be tempting anybody. Canadian bookshops, however, took a gamble on it and convinced the two to see it through. They got a credit line of $75,000 and printed 20,000 copies. All the copies sold in a year. From there, the game took off. In 1983, Celtron and Writer, who now sold the game in the United States, bought the rights outright. By 1984, 20 million copies had been sold. The game was so sought after that the second-hand market had put up the price to $60 a copy. Image was central to the look, with the sophistication it brought. A game you could play at a dinner party or a cocktail party. Adult board games were the future, with many copycats and imitations coming out in the years after, with games now looking more to the adult market than ever before. But the true adult revolution in board games did not come from America, however, or Britain, but further east in Europe. Often the biggest revolutions comes from the most unlikely sources. And this country has already been mentioned as creating a small revolution in board games. But their previous attempts was an unwieldy complex game. Germany was not a big player in worldwide gaming, but they were big gamers. And during the 1990s and 2000s, this was to change everything. Klaus Tieber had an obsession with the Vikings. And, as he read more, he got ever more fascinated. The popular image of the Vikings was of a raping and pillaging peoples from Scandinavia. But as Tabor learned, they were craftsmen and adventurers and storytellers. They traded as far as Baghdad, one of the key endpoints on the Silk Road. The Vikings, or Norse civilization, were great seamen and founded civilizations or attempted to as far afield as Iceland, Greenland, and Newfoundland. Tabor was a big board game enthusiast and played them constantly. With his interest, Tabor began to make games just for fun, not money. Tabor's first game was called Barbarossa, and it involved people having to deduce the meaning of other players clay sculptures. It was published in 1988. Other games would come from Tabor's mind, but none were popular enough, so he could not quit his job as a dental technician. When his mind moved back to the Vikings, he read about them discovering lands like Iceland, and he wondered what they would do when they got there. How would they go about building settlement? So, Klaus Teber began to plan Catan. It was originally a far bigger and more expansive game than was released. When he played it in 1992, it was far too complicated for a mass audience. Teber began to cut down the game bit by bit. The amount of resources were reduced, and it became more streamlined. The game was published in 1995, and people thought the game was good, but nobody thought it would launch a revolution. The game won a few awards, and like many games, the industry thought it would sell well in its first year, and then fizzle out. Germany by this point had ignored most of the world when it came to board games, and most of Germany ignored the outside. German-style games were, to use a crude stereotype, far more well-engineered than other games, but a little too complex. American-style games were still based on the old type of games like Cluedo or Monopoly. They might add plastic, but the games were still the same. These German-style games were about complex strategies without gimmicks. Germany was a natural place for board games. In the post-war period, it became a part of adult life with its feeling of togetherness and sociability. Germans have very strict parameters about what could be released. In the original German game of Risk, you had to liberate the world, not conquer it. It tells you something still about French post-war colonial attitudes, as they were finding out in Algeria and Indochina, compared to what the Germans had already learned about the futility of world conquest. Catan compared to a monopoly. In Catan... You can only win by trading and there is no armed conflict. It is a far more sociable game than Monopoly with cackling about other players losses or risk and its inherent backstabbing. The popularity of German games in the 1980s grew as critical opinion of games could lead to huge sales and this slowly started to spread out into other parts of Europe. Anglo-Saxon stagnation of creativity in board games still saw games where the winner was mostly down to luck. In German-style games, the dice were only used sparingly. There was still a randomness, but it wasn't a roll-and-see-who-win style of game. German-style games rarely had the type of game where a player gets knocked out, and the you get knocked out, so go and do some tidying up. Common in Monopoly, Risk, of- or Mousetrap was avoided. German-style games allowed for last-minute comebacks and it made it very difficult to see who was winning. So back to Catan. When it won the prestigious Spielgeharas in 1995, something remarkable happened. It kept on selling. Tabor quit his job and decided to make games full time. Catan was so popular it had the Harry Potter effect, where shops that wouldn't normally stock games suddenly started to stock it. Yet, Selling a German game in Germany was impressive, but there wasn't much interest in the United States for these games. For a professional like Alan Moon, he had to get the games shipped to Britain and then shipped over to the US. Moon's contact with German board game manufacturers meant his company Avalon Hill had published a few of these German style games, but they weren't a big success. There was little publicity. And many board game fans had to import the games themselves and get copies of the German fanzines and photocopy them for friends. But 1995 was also the start of the internet and the world wide web becoming more popular. And message boards were a common sight on the internet. And board game fans were perhaps nerdy enough to go onto the internet to learn about German board games. And all the Germans were raving about Catan. Mayfair Games was one of the other US companies that sold German style games, not because they were big sellers, but their founder, Darwin Bromley, was a big fan, and so they produced an English language version in 1995. By this point, there was a small core audience who would buy Catan instantly, but word of mouth resulted in it becoming a huge success. It took a while, but by 2008, half a million copies had been sold. In 2009, Catan was being played by Silicon Valley types, this being the height of Silicon Valley Cool, and before it was associated with creepy Mark Zuckerberg or exploitative Jeff Bezos. Silicon Valley types could gather around, have a beer and pizza, and play Catan. It was their version of a round of golf that executives in the 1980s might have done. Catan in the United States got a huge bump from this and suddenly appeared in The Simpsons, Big Bang Theory and South Park. Americans started to design games in the German style, with Alan Moon winning the Spiel des Jahres in 1998 for a German style game. Then Moon created Ticket to Ride, winning his second award in 2004. These German style games have been responsible for the sudden and unexpected rejuvenance in board gaming in recent years. So. With our little trip through more modern board games, it's time to focus on the daddy of all board games. The board game that's so simple a four-year-old can learn. But one of the types of games that once you learn a little bit about it, you realise how complex and tough it really is. I am of course talking about chess. Football is the world sport, but chess is the world game. You can walk somewhere, anywhere with a chessboard and find somebody to play it, with no misunderstanding. Get some players on a pitch with a football and you don't need a language. Football is a language in itself. Chess has a long and storied history, so much so that we don't really know about it. Like we've talked about before, myths may not be historically accurate, but they do tell us something. One of the earliest chess myths comes from India, near where the game originated. An Indian queen had her only son as an heir to the throne. When the son was assassinated, the queen's council wanted to tell her the best way to convey the news. They asked a philosopher, and he sat for three days and said, quote, Summon a carpenter with wood of two colours, black and white. Close the carpenter did as he was told and was then directed to carve 32 small figures and then make a square with 64 smaller squares inside. The philosopher then situated the pieces on the board and studied them. The philosopher then invented the game, and as news of the game grew, the Queen wished to watch. When the game was over, the Queen understood that her son was dead. I mean, it would have been easier to just tell the Queen, but it's less poetic, I suppose. Despite the story being utter nonsense, it gives us a starting point. Indeed, there are many other nonsense stories about where chess came from. Some say Pythagoras invented it to demonstrate the abstractions of mathematics, or that it was invented at Troy, or it was invented by Moses, and there are many more like that. Where it actually comes from can only be guessed at, but guesses don't mean it's completely off the mark. Chess was not invented at once. It took over a thousand years of additions and subtractions, To make it the game it is today. Evidence suggests what we call chess originated in Persia, modern day Iran. It was a two player war game with 32 pieces on a 64 squared board, 16 emerald men and 16 ruby men. Each army had a king, a minister, the queen, two elephants, two horses, and two rooks, Persian for chariots, spelled R U H K S and eight foot soldiers. The object was to trap the opponent's king. This game bears resemblance to Chuk Trang, a game from India that itself may have been imported from China and come down the Silk Road. These games had something in common, that it was intellect rather than strength that would be victorious. The emergence of chess came at the same time as the number zero, famously absent from Europe which would help to spread chess. The chessboard was often used as an abacus all over the world, from China to Europe. The Chancellor of the Exchequer was the name given to the man in England who was in charge of the finances, as accounts were settled on tables that looked like chessboards, hence the checker. The original spread of chess didn't occur from Persia or India, it was Islam that spread chess. Founded around the same time, Islam spread quickly, like nothing else before it. It controlled most of the centre of Eurasia, only 20 years after the death of Muhammad. When the Muslim conquerors reached Persia, they found Chess, which they called bloodless War. A game of wits and self-control, it was perfect for what this new religion imagined itself to be. They changed the name from Chachang into Shachang as it was easier to say in Arabic, and the game almost instantly became part of Islamic culture. Even with this, chess was not without controversy. The Quran outlawed uses of images to prohibit idol worship and outlawed gambling. Chess was a gambler's game during its time in Persia and India, with fairly reliable stories coming to us that players would bet their own fingers during games cut them off on the spot, and carried on playing. This kind of act drew disapproval from first and second generation Muslims. The other issue was that chess had no purpose other than recreation, and therefore it was disapproved of, if not prohibited. Nobody said, religions are fun. Chess, however, had a response to criticism that it was just recreation. It sharpened the mind and help for strategy in battle. In the end, chess was permitted, as long as there was no betting, no interference with religion, no anger, no bad language, no playing in public, and no representative pieces. Islamic craftsmen changed the figures into different types of stones, and not representation of the figures. By the ninth century, the game had spread to Constantinople, and by this time, the game was taken very seriously, in the Muslim world. Islam at the time was the most intellectual civilization, perhaps the world had yet seen, and chess really could be studied. The best players were known as aliyat, the highest of rank, and perhaps the first grandmasters. They could reportedly see 10 moves in advance, and in the entire 9th century there were only 5 aliyat, each succeeding the next. Al Adli dominated the game for much of his life during the middle of the 9th century, and also has the honour of being the first we know of to write a chess book in around 840, but this game was still a long way off from being what we know now. By 900, Islam controlled everything from North Africa and Spain to the Himalayas. With this, Islamic culture followed. Despite an attempt, in 1005 Egypt, Egypt, to once again ban chess. Chess was too entrenched in Islamic culture for it to be eradicated. The earliest known game of chess in Europe was in 822 when the Emir of Cordoba Abd al-Rahman II played a game. The game was an instant hit in Spain supposedly enjoying a great flourishing during the 9th century. Chess also entered Europe through Sicily through the Muslim invaders. It's probably not something we think about much now What with geopolitical propaganda, and still with Western notions of superiority. Just how much of a backwater Western culture was, and how much of our culture does come from Islam. But much of what the Crusaders brought back from the Holy Lands was originally from Islam. And chess was definitely one of those things. Much of Western thought in the 20th century was focused on saying that all Muslims did, was preserved Western knowledge from Rome and Greece. And then during the Renaissance, it came back to Europe. In fact, there was a lot of knowledge, as we've talked about during the High Middle Ages, that came exclusively to Europe through Islamic control of the Middle East. Chess was one of those things. Records show that Chess spread to Switzerland in 997, Christian controlled Spain in 1005, Southern Germany by 1050, in central Italy by 1061. Everywhere the game spread to it took hold. By the 12th century it was a central part of European life and listed as one of the most seven important things for a knight to learn, alongside riding, swimming, archery, boxing, hawking and verse writing. The Europeans modified the game to suit their own environment. The elephants that featured in the game were changed for bishops as the elephant was not well known, and the king's minister was replaced by the queen. Furthermore, Christianity had no prohibition against representational images, so the design of chessmen could be moved back to more literal images. (coughs) The name of the game changed too, from Shatrang to Ludus Sakorum, the game of chessmen, and from there into regional languages where it was shortened in English to become Chess. European kings embraced the game like the caliphs, emirs and rulers before. By 1200 the game was in Britain and Scandinavia and the game was adored in Iceland. People saw it as representing courtly life and very quickly it dropped its association with coming from a foreign land. Chess was integral to the way people saw themselves. Previous dice games represented a world dominated by chance and fate. Chess represented a new and more conscious empowerment of the individual. I'm not going to claim that chess caused the enlightenment, but think about it this way. You are an 8th century peasant who tills the land, and whose only chance for enjoyment might be drinking dice and sex. Now imagine you're a 12th century peasant, and you still enjoy your drinking and your sex but you spend your days playing chess and so it's embedded itself into your life and culture that, if you ever get good enough, you, a lowly peasant can beat somebody of a higher-up social class and really prove that anybody can beat anybody. These types of things we'll never know but it doesn't take the greatest logical leap to imagine these ideas quickly embedding themselves in society like a cultural meme. In this new society you can win money for your family gambling on the game, all because you are better than somebody else, and not because of luck. It isn't too hard to imagine how that seeps into other parts of life. Chess also produced one of the most widely read books of all time pre-printing press. Written by Dominican monk, Jacques de Celos, a chess book spread through Europe like no other piece of writing. Some even said it was the second most popular book after the Bible. The book wasn't actually about chess, as much as how chess can relate to modern life. Chess was the model he used. The end of the 12th century was the perfect time for this. Called the mini-Renaissance, it saw an increase in literacy and the start of the northern universities, which we'll get onto in a future episode. Chess as well as highlighting social and cultural roles, can be seen as an important metaphor for art, with its use in medieval love poetry becoming almost ubiquitous. Chess, as you might expect, also began to change in its gameplay. A 500-year-old, at least, Persian game was bound to undergo rule changes. This was especially going to happen in Europe more than the Islamic world, as it was more of unified polity compared to Europe, with hundreds of different polities and dozens of languages, there was some unification. Large kingdoms were emerging, and the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church still existed, but none were powerful enough to enforce large-scale rules. Games all over Europe shared common features, but all had small changes. In Lombard. The king could jump over pieces, and the king and queen could move together on their first move. In Germany, four of the pawns could double square move initially. Eventually, however, through a process of diffusion, the game became more unified and settled on a very European-style game. Perhaps due to the nature of European society, which was still far less intellectual than Islamic society, The game for much of this time was used for its social aspects rather than as an intellectual pursuit, but slowly things began to change. Things began to change in chess in Europe, as did much else, in the 15th and 16th century. This was in response to an increase in intellectualism and changes in social forces. The most obvious and top-down social force was the increase in powerful queens across Europe. Catherine of Aragon. Isabella of Castile, Elizabeth I, and so on. This period saw the standardisation of all pawns being able to move one or two squares on its first move. Bishops could move any number of ways diagonally. The queens were now an amalgamation of bishops and rooks. Some say, and it's probably a stretch, that the queen became the most powerful piece in recognition of the new powerful queens, especially Isabella of Castile who was far more militant and powerful than her husband. There was also a myth that Isabella's husband was playing a game of chess in 1492, and had just won the game when Christopher Columbus came to him, as he was just about to win with his plan to sail the Indies. He was in such a good mood, he apparently approved the plan there and then. The new era of intellectualism resulted in the game taking a character unlike anything people had seen before. With the changes in bishops and queens, they could threaten the opponent's king in just a few moves. It was now a lot more complex, with all the differences in pieces and the amount of games becoming infinite. How many moves are there in chess? The estimated amount is 10 to the power of 120. That's a thousand trillion 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 trillion. The number of electrons in the universe is estimated at a mere ten to the power of seventy-nine. While chess flourished in the Renaissance, it was the Enlightenment that saw chess reach new pinnacles of popularity. Perhaps the most famous player of his era was Benjamin Franklin, who wrote a book about it in 1786. Now, rather than talk about chess through social and courtly life, chess was a metaphor for democracy. From both the philosophical problems of learning a game, and testing yourself against the best chess players, chess became a symbol of the age. Franklin was the best player in the Americas, and came to London and Paris to find more competition. Chess by this point was moving towards cafes, where you could play with strangers. A game of leisure and intellect, it was played by the new intellectuals of the time. Chess playing with the publication of Jacarino Greco's Chess Guide on Chess Openings gave way to a new chess culture, and not just a pursuit for intellectuals, but a real intellectual pursuit in and of itself. About 1740, and chess began to centralise at Café de l'Origence, a bistro near the Louvre. Chess balls were rented by the hour, and it became the centre of the chess universe. It stayed like this for a long, long time. The reason for the Regence becoming the centre of the chess universe was almost certainly down to De Camus Sir Ligal, a chess instructor and the best player in Paris. He was put on the payroll, and then suddenly, in 1743, he was beaten by a teenager, François-André Danican Philidor, who had been an apprentice of his, and became the new chess phenomenon of the age. Philidor travelled to London and Amsterdam to play and beat a Syrian born player who was known around the world due to his chess clubs. Philidor's secret was his slower play and using pawns as his most important piece. Working together they were more important than any other piece on the table. They would defend another and move up the table to get promotions. This theory of chess playing came at the exact time Of ideas of all men being created equal, being promoted by enlightened philosophers. Near the end of the 18th century, a young army officer came to the cafe called Napoleon Bonaparte, who was not a great player, being especially bad at the openings. He was a passionate player, taking the game with him wherever he travelled. Despite never being a great player, Napoleon was to say, His chess playing sharpened his tactical mind, and some of his newest and most daring attacks, he said, took place first on the chessboard. With the start of the Industrial Revolution, and especially travel by train, there started to be an international chess community. Berlin, Warsaw, Vienna, Moscow, Rome and London all had excellent players. Maybe not quite the same as Paris, but close. The rapid advance of communication, with first the printing press and postal services, but also the telegraph, allowed for chess theory to travel far quicker and for chess cultures to blend and meet. By the middle of the 19th century, London began to be the place to be. The centre of the world and the richest place in the world, with all that money coming in from the empire, meant chess players began to move to London, stripping Paris of its title. This meant that Illustrated London news columnist Howard Staunton in 1851 organised the world's first international chess tournament to coincide with the Great Exhibition of 1851. Adolf Andersson won the 16-man tournament. Though it's most famous for a casual game he played with Lionel Kessarinsky during one of the days off, Andersson, noted for his brilliant sacrificial play One what is called the greatest and most studied game in chess history. And I'd recommend pausing the podcast here to look it up on YouTube or watch the Wikipedia animation of the game. In The Immortal Game, Anderson gives up both rooks and a bishop, but checkmates his opponent with his three remaining minor pieces. A brilliant piece of play. The Nazis were fascinated with chess as a game of war. It was used as an anti-Semitic device, where Jews were supposedly playing cowardly chess and the Aryans played brave chess. This was of course nonsense, but what was true was that when the Nazis claimed a Jew had a deep connection to the game, it wasn't an idle observation. Chess had been central to Jewish culture for a long time, with most rabbis stating it was a tool for the youth to focus their intellect. There were many Jewish players who were dominant, but while the Nazis were obviously anti-Semitic in their criticism of the Jew, Jewish players did play in a style different to the Romantic school with its sacrificial and thrilling play highlighted by Adolf Andersen. Jewish players were known for their scientific play, which was dull to watch with careful precision and trying to highlight small weaknesses in opponents' play. The most important thing was that this style became the best method, and non-Jewish players didn't have a problem picking it up when they saw how much more successful it was than their own romantic style. But it wasn't the Nazis that used chess as its foremost political ends. This was the United States and the USSR during the Cold War. The first international sporting match after the Second World War took place in both the Manhattan Henry Hudson Hotel and the Moscow Central Club of the Artmasters. Played over radio, a chess match between the two players took place 17 days after VJ Day. The Soviets won 14.5 to 4.5, and many saw it as a sign of the Soviets' deep chess history. For the Americans, it was a game between the two countries' best players. It was a part of a long-term strategy to get the world's most powerful chess team. Most of the Bolshevik revolutionaries were fanatical players, as was Karl Marx. Soon after the October Revolution in 1917, Lenin was already using chess as a useful tool on the cultural front. The Soviets were known for cheating rather heavily. In a match in 1946, the players went for lunch with the Soviets in a losing position. When they came back from lunch, the Soviet players came back and found the only moves that could secure them a draw. The Soviet player had had a group of players analysing the game behind the scenes. The Soviets were also known for pre-arranging games between their own players during big tournaments to give their best players more rest time. Now this sounds like a film, and indeed it has been made into one, but the American could find only one response to the Soviet chess juggernaut, Bobby Fischer. After beating Tigran Peterson in 1971, Fischer won the right to play the Russian Boris Spassky in the world championships for the title of world champion. For the first time since the Second World War, an American had a shot at the title. The match of the century was not just a chess match, but also part of the Cold War battle. The game represented the two nations, two ideologies. Spassky was working as a team to push for collective glory. Fischer was an individual genius playing for himself. What would win out? Individualism or collectivism? On the 1st of July, 1972 in Reykjavik, Iceland, the game was almost cancelled before it began as Fischer wanted more money. Eventually the money was doubled to $250,000 and Fischer agreed to play. Fischer lost the first game and resigned in Game 2 after an argument over TV cameras. However, he turned a corner in Games 3 and 4 to secure draws. He won Game 5, and then won Game 6 in such an impressive manner, Spassky stood and applauded. Rocky 4 come to life. Fisher then won 7, drew 8, and 9, and won 10. It was the Soviets' turn to accuse the Americans of cheating, but nothing was ever found to support the claims. Spassky was forced to play for draws, and Fischer, knowing he was ahead, was happy to comply. Fischer single-handedly won the World Chess Championship, giving PBS its highest viewing figures for any broadcast at the time, and turning Fischer into a chess hero. Fischer's story is famous, and after refusing to defend his title, he went into obscurity and became a hermit. It's said that at his peak, Fischer is the best player to have ever played chess. It's just that his peak was so short. Chess as a game is still seen as one of the pinnacles of human brain power. In this, the idea of superintelligence and AI looms over chess like no other human activity. Garry Kasparov, the great Russian world champion, is not perhaps best known for his domination of chess, for much of the 1980s, 1990s, and into the 2000s. He is arguably most known for being the first world chess champion to lose to a computer. Chess computers in the 1980s were pathetic until the early 1990s, and it saw a sudden uptick in their ability. The first was Deep Thought, which was competitive with human players. Yet it saw the arrival of Deep Blue that was to change everything. In 1996, it lost to Kasparov, but a year later, it won a close rematch. The victory was shocking, exciting, and saw computers overtaking humans at something we humans thought to be the pinnacle of human cognition. I'm not going to do a deep dive of AI, or even AI in chess, for the moment. I'll save that for the episode on AI. But it's safe to say that for much of the 1970s to 1990s, Chess was a choice vehicle for AI research. By 1978, the best chess machine at the time forced the Scottish chess player David Levy into a draw, and in 1988, the chess machine, High Tech, became the first computer to be ranked as a Grandmaster. By the time Kasparov played Deep Blue, Kasparov reported signs of genuine thought in its play. Despite some claiming, that the victory of Deep Blue was a revolution, others, such as Noam Chomsky, said it was about as important as a bulldozer being able to lift more than a manual labourer. The use of AI in board games is not limited to chess. Numerous games, such as checkers or drafts, have been solved by the use of computers. But perhaps the most famous use in recent years of AI in board games is the Chinese game of Wei Qi, better known in the West as Go. A 3000 year old game with more history and legend behind it than chess, it's also far more complicated than chess 2. The goal of the game is to capture enemy stones and control territory. The game is simple, but with so many variables it takes a lifetime to master. In chess, there are an average of 35 possible moves per turn. In Go, it is 250. The way Deep Blue worked was that the next move was worked out by sheer number crunching. Such was Go's complexity that people thought it might take 100 years to reach an equivalent level in chess. And so, a new approach was needed. Go researcher Rémy Coulomb thought the best approach was the Monte Carlo method. The method, as the name might suggest, was not about crunching every single possible move, but randomly sampling fewer possibilities it was, in effect, probability. The method wasn't perfect, but still very good. The Monte Carlo method proved the biggest breakthrough in computer go in a long time. But this still wasn't going to beat the best players. A new approach was needed. Neural networks were an old idea, attempting to mimic the human brain. It originated in the 1950s, when computer power meant the biggest neural networks were about the size of a jellyfish brain. But by the 2010s, it was improving enough to be a viable option. Then, almost out of nowhere, a London-based AI startup and Google's subsidiary, DeepMind, announced that it had created a program called AlphaGo, which had defeated European Go champion, Fren Hay. However, he was only the 633rd best player in the world. The only way to settle this man versus machine contest would be against the best Go player in the world, Lee Sedol. Like the Deep Blue match of the 1990s, this matchup resulted in a much wider interest beyond the wider Go and AI communities. Lee was confident of victory, but AlphaGo won 4-1, and it was a sign of something new. Not like Deep Blue, AlphaGo learned from its own mistakes and improved its own play not relying on humans to feed it more information. Playing cards are an endless and timeless way to pass time, and are a source of constant reinvention and new games, seemingly more so than any other game. The variety of games played probably beat that of any other gaming tool. They can be used to gamble, play complex games, social games, drinking games, and anything in between. Never cool or uncool, playing cards are as timeless as anything in our culture. But how did we get them here? Nobody knows the exact history, like in many things, but there are hints and theories about the start of playing cards. Going back to Arabia in the 8th century, we have documentation of their presence. But it wasn't until the 12th century in China where we have archaeological evidence of their existence. Though there are other slivers of evidence in the Tang Dynasty that cards were used as a drinking game. Some say there may have been a monetary value to the cards. But by the 12th century, it was most likely established in China, and moved to India, Korea, Persia and Egypt, most likely down our favourite Silk Road. How playing cards got into Europe, however, is another matter. The likeliest route is through Egypt which had a 52-deck playing card divided into four suits, swords, cups, coins and sticks. The picture cards were represented too, with a king, deputy king and under-deputy. By the late 14th century, playing cards were in use all over Europe. But it was in Germany, with their printing presses, who began to churn out packs by the hundreds when playing cards really came into their own. The Europeans began to apply their own courtly life into the cards. The most common cards were King, Valet and chevalier. In France, however, they began to put the Queen to replace the chevalier, and put plates onto the Valet. By the late 15th century, it was agreed that the standard deck would be best at 52 cards. From here, the cards went into England, where we get the King, Queen and Knave. The ace was not always in the deck, it was of course in number one. But for most of Card's history, it was the king that was number one. By the late 14th century, the lowest card began to be held in special regard. With the French Revolution, games playing ace high became even more common. The French even tried to change the picture card to liberty, equality and fraternity, but it never caught on. It was fairly early on that the Ace of Spades was traditionally seen as the face of the deck. It is often the card used on the front of the deck to show the manufacturer of the deck. This began in 17th century England under King James I, where duties were needed to be paid, and the Ace of Spades carried the insignia of the printing house as proof of tax paid. The duty was still levied into the 1960s, though it has been abolished today. Yet, the Ace of Spades remains the face of the deck. By the middle of the 19th century, the deck had been formalised, the King, Queen and Knave. Hearts, spades, clubs and diamonds were also in widespread use, and these had spread to the New World. The New World, with all its power and might, began to initiate the first industrial-scale production of playing cards. Cards came to America with as much vigour as when it hit Europe, spreading quickly from colonists to the general population. As the US spread west, Cards spread west too. Their ease of use and versatility made it the perfect game for the rapidly expanding West. With almost no setup, anybody could produce a pack of cards from their pocket and gamble or enjoy themselves with almost no effort required. By the 1840s, Samuel Hart was manufacturing cards in Philadelphia and Russell and Morgan in Cincinnati, while Lawrence and Levy would form a New York Consolidated Card Company. These printers however found an issue. The King and the Queen had the symbol K&Q, but Knave was KN, which often got confused with the King. Therefore, a change was needed and, in an old English game called All Fours, the Knave played the role of the Jack of Trumps. This name was obvious and it stuck very quickly, replacing the Knave. There is only one more addition needed to the modern deck. The Joker. The Joker emerged in the mid-19th century in a variation of a game where a trump card was needed. The name Joker was a bastardization of the German word Bauer, or Boer, as it began to find roles in card games like poker. It was the Europeans who portrayed him as the court jester. The Joker is the oddest part of the current card deck. Brought in in the middle of the 19th century, he's not used much at all, and in many games is never ever even used, leaving him an unexplored character in many Anglo-American card games. So now we move to video games, the newest realm of gaming and the most rapidly developing. Today video games are a worldwide phenomenon, with $139.4 billion worth of sales in 2018 alone. There are professional gamers YouTube streamers, social and casual gamers, and hardcore amateur gamers, and everything in between. Video games can be played on any array of devices. From computers, consoles, arcades, phones, tablets, handheld consoles or VR headsets, the term video game is a catch-all. And I won't be going into everything in detail here, but we'll get quite into it. So depending on what you think a computer game is, depends on when you start the story. I'll be starting in 1946, just a year after the end of the Second World War. On the 14th of February 1946, the first programmable computer, the Electronic Numeric Integrator and Calculator, or ENIAC, was turned on, costing $500,000 of US military funding. The dream for many computer scientists was getting AI strong enough to beat humans at chess. In 1947, Alan Turing wrote, the first computer chess program, but the program was so advanced none of the other computers that existed could run the program. Perhaps the start of video games comes exactly in 1951 at the Festival of Britain, a national event after the Second World War, and supposed to be a follow-up, 100 years later, of the Great Exhibition of 1851. British computer company Ferranti promised the government it would participate, but with the festival only weeks away they needed a quick solution. Australian John Bennett, an employee, came to the rescue. Bennett proposed a computer that could play a simple parlor game, NIM. Players are presented with piles of matches, and they take it in turn to remove one or more of the matches from any of the piles, and the player who takes the last match loses. The idea of Bennett's was not to create a machine that was fun to play, but merely to show the mathematical importance of computers. By the 12th of April, 1951, the computer Nimrod was ready. Twelve foot wide, five feet tall, and nine foot deep, it was huge. When the game was displayed to the public, the engineers were slightly surprised that nobody was interested in the maths of the computer, but merely just interested in playing the game. After the Festival of Britain, Nimrod went to Berlin, and the German economic Minister played the game. But, when it came back to Britain, the computer was dismantled. There were other early designs for computer games. These were very simple and experimental, just to see if they could be programmed. But the first real attempt at making computer games came from the proliferation of another technology. In 1946, just 0.5% of US households had TVs. By 1950, it was 9%, and by the end of the 1950s, it was 90%. TV network Dumont became the first to try and create games that could be played on the television. Dumont created an early version of this, but never followed up on the idea. A few years later, Ralph Beer had a similar idea, but again never followed up on the idea. By the later 1950s, the idea of a video game was still a far-flung one, Computer scientists didn't see games as real work, more experimental and the like. William Higginbottom had worked on the Manhattan Project, and in 1958 he was working at the Brookhaven National Laboratory, a US research facility, where every year they had an open day. With open day looming, Higginbottom wanted to create something engaging. He came up with Tennis for Two, a very simple game where you play with a net in the middle and use your controllers to bounce the ball back at each other. The game was so popular in 1958 that it returned the following year. However, after 1959, it too was dismantled so its parts could be used for other purposes. At MIT, the Tech Model Railroad Company was as nerdy as it sounds. I would have loved it there. The club's members loved their computers, and they had a far different idea of how to use computers compared to their professors. Club member Robert Wagner created the expensive desk calculator. It did exactly the same thing as a calculator would do, except on a computer that cost a thousand times more. For his efforts, he received the mark of zero. But the Tech Model Railroad Club would soon get far more imaginative than that. In late 1961, MIT received the -the state-of-the-art PDP-1, worth $120,000. The size of a big car, members of the club thought about what they could do with it. They wanted a game, something with action and skill, and moving things around. Being big fans of science fiction, they came up with the idea of a spaceship. Wayne Wittemann, Steve Russell and Martin Greatex set up to create a two-player spaceship dual computer program. After a few delays in late 1961, Russell finished an early draft. After changing the physics, making it easy to play and adding a map, by May 1962, Space War was ready. Word of the game quickly reached other PDP-1 users around MIT, and then spread beyond MIT. But with the $120,000 computer needed, it was still part of the computing elite, not for the masses. So back to Ralph Beer who, in 1951, had the idea of a computer game to be played on a TV. In August 1966, Beer was head of the Sanders Associates military contractor. On a business trip, he had an epiphany for a cheap TV plug-in that could play computer games. Using his position as head of a large division, he set to work on this idea in secret. He got some engineers to work on it, and by March 1967, he had a prototype and several games. There was a chase game, a ping pong game, and a few others. He showed it to his superiors who weren't keen, but still gave him some money and time to work on it some more. Brown Box, as it was called, was nearly finished by 1967 and a cable TV company was interested in it. But Sanders couldn't produce it, and neither could the cable company, and so it was left to gather dust. Space War, however, spread to many universities across America, and Bill Pitts discovered the game in the mid-1960s at Stanford. Pitts and a friend, Hugh Tuck, thought they could design their own version and make it commercially viable enough to sell. By 1971, it was ready, and now called Galaxy Game. Meanwhile, Nolan Bushall also had the idea, having worked at arcades, that if he could put the game on a computer screen and get it into an arcade, he would make a lot of money. The problem was the computer did cost a lot of money. After graduating in 1968, he didn't give up on the idea, and when he read about the Data and General Nova computer that only cost $3,999, he thought of Space War and said to himself, quote, if I could get that computer to run four monitors and have four coin slots, it would make enough money to pay for itself. Using the Nova computer didn't work, but Bushall and a colleague created dedicated parts to try and get it to work. The new systems they designed made it cheap enough that the economics worked out so they only needed one screen and not the four they previously thought. This resulted in a change of approach, Instead of needing to battle others, the pair designed a variation of the game so you no longer needed to shoot down each other, but shoot down flying saucers controlled by the computer. The Pit version debuted in 1971 and attracted a huge crowd ten deep to play the game. But the game wasn't making enough money, as the two-player version they made only charged the loser and the winner got to stay on without paying. But the Bushnell version was far more business friendly. Two months after Galaxy game came Computer Space. This game was popular too with students, yet it proved less popular with arcade owners, who didn't really understand it. The game looked like a failure compared to what was to come but they were pioneers and played by enough people to be the start of something. Back to Ralph Beer's Brown Box, which had finally gotten a licensee in Magnavox, and so, in 1971, work began to turn it into a marketable product. They settled on calling it The Odyssey, and with 12 games, including a table tennis game called Ping Pong, it sold for $99.95. It went on display near San Francisco, where Noel Bushnell saw it. Bushnell was developing a driving game at the time, but he had a deal to create video games for a pinball giant called Ballet Midway. But Bushnell really wanted to create a driving game. He called his company Sigzy, but when he found another company by the same name, he needed another. He turned to his favourite game, Go, which we talked about earlier. In Go, there's a similar concept to Czech called Atari. He chose this as the name of the company. The day they set up the company, they hired Al Alcorn. And so Bushnell gave him a simple task. Create a version of ping pong that the Odyssey console had. Alcorn improved on the version in several ways. He had the ball bounce off the bat in different ways. He added scores and sound effects. And when Bushnell played it, he was immediately impressed. In September, Atari tried the game out at the Andy Cap's Tavern in Sunnyvale, California, but Bally Midway did not want the game. Bushnell got a call that the game had stopped working, and so when Alcorn went to find out why, he opened the coin box and found coins flooding out of the machine. Most coin machines made $50 a week, Pong had made $200. People were queuing around the block to play the game. When again they tried to sell it, everybody rejected them. And so Atari decided to sell the game for themselves. Atari gambled everything on the idea. They made 11 units at $280, selling for $900. They sold the 11 straight away and pumped the money back into more sales. The game started a mania, with arcade companies all over America getting wind of this and trying to buy it. Atari needed to up their production line. Pong was taken America by storm, and then the world as it went to Japan. And in only a couple of years, in 1974, there were about 100,000 coin-operated video games in America. Pong's success took everybody by surprise. Video games were seen as entering into the space ages rather than the old electromechanical games like Pinball. Within a year of Pong's debut, there were 15 companies that operated a coin-operated video game. Most were basic copies, but with all of this competition, Atari knew they needed to expand their range of games. Atari's laid-back management style, yet ferocious working culture, resulted in Space Race, Gotcha, Quack, Missile Command and Grand Track 10, the first driving video game. The next logical step was to get Pong into the homes of the ordinary person. The Magnavox Odyssey had been the inspiration, and so Atari set about producing a home version. Despite the prohibitively high costs, the company built a prototype home Pong console. When it was finished, they tried to market the game for $99.95, but most toy stores thought the product was too expensive. They tried selling it in televisions and hi-fi sections, but to no luck. As a last resort, they sold it as a sports accessory. Sears agreed to sell the console, and it sold 150,000 versions in no time at all. It resulted in a second Pong mania, and Atari becoming a household name. By 1977, there were 60 Pong-style consoles on sale, and 13 million sold in the US alone. The video game industry was obviously very closely linked to the developing home computer market. The release of the Altair 8880 was the first microprocessor for a home market. It had just 256 bytes of memory, less today than used by an email with no text or subject line. It was very basic. But it was used by all the hobbyists, including Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Meanwhile, Atari had employed a young hippie technician called Steve Jobs who was hired to cull as many microchips from a new game Breakout to keep costs down. Jobs asked his friend Steve Wozniak for help. Wozniak slashed the number of integrated circuits in half and Jobs got a bonus worth several thousand dollars he could use to travel around India. The video game had conquered the arcade but still had the home PC industry still nascent at the time to conquer. Computers were still mostly used for academia, government and business, and not for ordinary consumers. The lack of speed in computers meant that the games there were programmed for computers and were crude and turn-based. Hangman, roulette and battleships were the type of games played. But as gaming culture proliferated, programmers began to explore more inventive ideas. This changed slowly with games that let you take command of the USS Enterprise or manage virtual cities in the Sumer game. Which both sound like my type of game. When Steve Wozniak made the Apple One microprocessor that could connect a keyboard and a TV, he had invented the first personal computer. By the time of its release, Jobs and Wozniak were close to finishing the Apple II. Wozniak wanted it to be able to play state-of-the-art computer games. And at the same time, as the Apple II came to the TRS-80, and PET very quickly brought computers into the home. But what would people do with these new home computers? It ended up largely being used for playing video games. Across the US, computer enthusiasts were writing games they hoped to sell. There were many games around this time, most of which were forgettable, or remakes of popular board games such as Dungeons & Dragons. But by the early 1980s, the home video game market was looking for something new. Something revolutionary, not the same old thing. Atari was later bought out by Warner and released Atari Football. It was supposed to be the biggest arcade game of the year. But then from nowhere, something else came out that took everybody by surprise. Space Invaders. Tomoharo Nekishido wanted to use microprocessors for his next game and thought about what would be the best type of game to build. He decided on a shooting game. Yet the president of the company he worked for, Tahito, did not want a game where you shoot people. And so Nishikido chose to shoot aliens. The game was a departure from Pong. This new game was stressful, adrenaline-fueled fun, not the more innocent experience of Pong. From its release in Japan, space invaders conquered Japan within weeks. It was said the 100 yen coin was used so much there was a shortage of them in Japan. The Bank of Japan even launched an investigation into Tahiro. Space Invaders had a similar impact in the United States. The sales figures show this, with the 1979 figures for arcades tripling within a year. The release of Space Invaders led to video game fever. Everybody wanted a part of it. Everybody thought it would be huge. Stories came out about how it would soon be bigger than the movie and music industry combined. Everybody was setting up video game businesses, from George Lucas to Disney. 1979 saw the release of Space Invaders and an improvement in computer technology, allowing for far more freedom when it came to graphics. By this point, games like Defender had gone too far in the shoot 'em up direction and were catering ever more towards men. Not necessarily a problem, But arcades were full of men, who were playing games designed for men, thus limiting yourself to only reaching 50% of the population. Tori Iwanati set out to design a game that could appeal to women too. He wanted arcades to be a place that could be frequented by couples on dates, and make the arcade a date location. Iwatani thought about what women might enjoy doing, and perhaps not wrongly, But perhaps rather sexlessly, he thought women might enjoy eating, and so he came across an image of a pizza with a slice taken out of it. He based Pac-Man from this design. He followed this up with a chase game, where the player playing as Pac-Man has to eat all the dots in a maze while dodging four ghosts. It was designed using Japanese kawaii, or Japanese cuteness, as its main aesthetic, as this was supposed to appeal to women. There was nothing sensational about the gameplay that would make people play it, it was just very addictive. The growth of arcades during this period is well attested to, but the release of Pac-Man sent it into overdrive. It was successful in bringing a large female audience into the arcade, and the cute characters made it ideal for merchandising. A Pac-Man cartoon series drew a 20 million TV audience, and a Pac-Man song sold more than a million copies. Atari 2 found itself on a gold mine after it found out it had the exclusive rights to Namco's games in a deal designed in 1978 when it had no hits to its name. The next game we'll talk about is the biggest video game selling franchise in history. Designed by Shigeru Miyamoto, who is now regarded as one of the greatest game developers, this was his first game. Nintendo had had a poor run in the United States, and most of its games had failed. Miyamoto was told to make a game similar to Popeye, but Nintendo couldn't get the rights. He came up with a new game, a mix of King Kong and Beauty and the Beast. It revolved around a giant gorilla, Donkey Kong, who tried with Jumpman's help to rescue Pauline. The game was massively successful, creating a new genre altogether called the platform game. With the success, Nintendo changed Jumpman's name in honour of their US landlord, and called him Mario. Then, out of nowhere, that can only be seen in retrospect, the video game industry crashed. Revenues of $3.2 billion in 1983 fell to $100 million in 1985. There were lots of poor games out there. Even in a boom, you need quality products. One of the most infamous games was Custer's Revenge, made for the Atari 2600. The aim of the game was to try and rape a Native American woman tied to a post. The dearth quality of games put people off buying anything new, so retailers slashed prices and stopped ordering new games. Furthermore, the Atari 2600 was five years old, and unlike in modern times, there was seemingly no attempt from Atari to develop the console. Furthermore, there were competitions for video games now. The VCR reinvented television, allowing for people to watch what they wanted and when. Then there was the other developing technology, the PC. The Commodore 64, which in 1983 had 38% of the market share, didn't offer the same margins as arcade gaming. Plus, it was far easier to copy games on PC. Perhaps the most infamous story of the video game crash comes from Atari. It has been called one of the biggest disasters in corporate history. Losing so much money, it almost brought down Warner Communications, who owned Atari at the time. E.T., the extraterrestrial, was one of the biggest films of all time, and Atari made a $25 million deal for the rights. Many at Atari were horrified Warner struck this deal. I mean, how do you create a game about E.T.? There's no action in it. The bigwigs convinced the engineers to make the game in six weeks for a large bonus. The game was completed, but it was terrible. Atari had even made five million copies. Most of them were returned to Atari in 20 semi-trailer trucks and were buried beneath the New Mexico desert. Concrete was poured over the landfill, ensuring that in 500 years time, an archaeologist is going to dig it up and try and play the game in a future version of Time Team. When Trip Hawkins spent seven years preparing for technology to catch up his dreams for a video game company, he couldn't have chosen a worse time. Halfway through the video game crash, he quit his job at Apple to set up Electronic Arts in 1982. His dream was for an integrated video game company, something that would make, package and distribute the games. He saw it as a similar technique as the Hollywood studio system of the 1920s. The first few years were difficult, but slowly they found their niche in the home computer market. The home computer users were different to the arcade market. The computer users were older, more educated, richer and more tech-minded. These users were more into complex, slower games, not the crash-bang wallop of the arcades. Early games, such as Mule, were a computerized board game based on supply and demand, as colonists on a faraway planet tried to eke out a living. With the release of the Apple Macintosh and the graphical user interface we're all used to on modern computers, allowed for a new form of game, this was followed by a flurry of complex and rich games. But, for the general population, the video game industry was saved by a Japanese toy company founded in 1889. Nintendo, by 1977, had failed in their first attempt to get into the video game industry. They hoped to achieve success by releasing two games consoles, Color TV 6 Game 6 and Color TV Game 15. That the Japanese were capable of producing great pieces of consumer electronics was not in doubt but there was little supposed appetite for Japanese culture, which basically at the time was Godzilla and in niche circles the film of Akira Kurosawa. But things changed quickly. First was Space Invaders, which broke down the idea that the Japanese were machines and not cultural. Secondly, Nintendo released the console Famicom. Designed to be a year ahead of its time and a third of the price, it contained just a cartridge based console with a controller. Called in the US the Nintendo Entertainment System or NES, it was the best selling console of its generation and helped to reinvigorate the industry after the slump. It also pioneered the use of allowing third parties to make games. The NES was also vital for formatting future video games. The idea was to allow people to feel the games were like a novel. Released in 1987, Final Fantasy set about turning every video game into its own role-playing game. Then came Legend of Zelda, which showed Nintendo couldn't just make great consoles, but great games too. The Japanese had a hard time getting Famicom into the United States. They approached Atari to try and get them to release it, and when that failed, they redesigned the NES to make it look more like a game's console rather than what it was in Japan, which was a games console marketed as a home computer. Following a very concerted media campaign in New York at first, and then LA, Chicago and San Francisco, it went all around the country. When Super Mario Bros was released in 1986, the game and the console went crazy. By 1987, it was clear to all that Nintendo had not only reinvigorated the video game market, but dominated the video games industry. And their power was not just in video games, but toys too. In 1989, Nintendo products accounted for 23% of all toys sold in the US. By the release of Super Mario Bros 3, video games were huge. Mario was more famous than Mickey Mouse, and game designer Miyamoto was seen as an artist on the level of Spielberg or McCartney. Super Mario Bros, grows more than ET. The late 1980s and early 1990s saw everybody try and catch up with Nintendo. The only company that came close in this period was Sega with its Genesis, or if you live in the UK, the Mega Drive. The first idea was to get a mascot like Mario for Nintendo. Intended to be a faster version of Mario Bros, Sonic the Hedgehog was a rapid game. Initially it was going to be a rabbit. But it was changed to a hedgehog, so its spines could attack enemies. The mascot proved hugely popular, and Sony furthered this with a strong line in sports games. The late 1980s and early 1990s were the foundation of the modern video game, with the CD-ROM introduction into video games making PC gaming catch up. While in 1991 at CES, Nintendo announced it was working with Sony to create a Super NES with built-in CD-Drive. They were calling this new console the Nintendo PlayStation, and with the hyper around the CD-ROM, this new console should have been a monumental announcement, but there was tension behind the scenes. Nintendo was worried that Sony wanted to move in on their game business, which effectively was accurate. The day after the announcement, Nintendo said it was dropping Sony and working with Philips. It was a huge misunderestimation thinking Sony would drop the PlayStation altogether. It did not. The new Sony PlayStation was announced and mixed the two biggest developments in gaming, the CD-ROM and 3D graphics. This new technology came at a price. Earlier consoles using this tech such as the Panasonic FZ1 cost nearly $700. So how did Sony produce a successful product? Sega were the first to show the use of 3D graphics in games, but their new games console did not fully embrace 3D graphics, handing the initiative to Sony. Sony enabled game manufacturers to reproduce their games in 3D, like Ridge Racer, while Sony invested $2 billion worldwide in marketing for the new PlayStation. The PlayStation was brilliantly marketed, and was the first game console to really take Europe in the same way they had taken America. The new games and their complexity and graphics, along with the zeitgeist of many games, hit the public consciousness. One game, Wipeout, used house music by the Chemical Brothers, and Sony installed PlayStation pods in nightclubs. Lara Croft, a female Indiana Jones, hit the girl power buzz of the mid-1990s, and it all meant that the PlayStation would be the gaming hit of the decade. Around this time of course, there was another technology coming that would open up the possibilities for gaming. Dan Woods released in 1977 Adventure, the first text game adventure. Roy Trubshaw thought it would be a good game to release for a pet project to build a virtual world that different computer users could explore together. Trubshaw invested time into figuring out how to get the computers to communicate with each other. The game was called Mud short for Multi-User Dungeon. It went live in 1980 and took computer games into a new era. The game resulted in a new subculture being developed between players. New players were especially hounded by a group of players who became known as griefers, who attacked what they called newbies or noobs. This moniker probably didn't originate here, but imported from the British Army or British public schools. Mud could have been very obscure if it wasn't used as a primary test for BT, who were testing a system called the EPSS, the Experimental Packet Switching System. Not widespread, but available to some, it allowed you to connect to the ARPANET. As ARPANET turned into the internet, in 1988 it was opened up when Tim Berners-Lee developed the World Wide Web, and the hypertext-based system that made the internet easy to navigate it started to go mainstream. By 1994, a new era of technology was upon us. Soon, big online multiplayer games like Ultima were released. Ultima was a real landmark for online games, as within three days of release, 50,000 had paid to play the game. The online multiplayer game would of course go on to be complex and produce intricate games like World of Warcraft and RuneScape, the latter of which I must have spent hundreds of hours playing as a teenager. Soon online gaming was huge, and then came portable gaming with the Game Boy and the release of Pokemon, which became the next big thing. Portable gaming today is mostly mobile and casual gaming, think Candy Crush or Temple Run. These casual games are odd, they don't really ascribe to being the successor of the arcade or anything like that had come before. They're probably closest to the arcade game in that they're simple and only take a couple of minutes. Most have some kind of high score to beat or a series of levels. But for me, casual gaming is perhaps the last event in the current epoch of gaming, which goes right to the start of video gaming. Why do I think that? Well, everybody seems to play casual games. I play pool occasionally and chess on my phone. My mum plays Candy Crush. Almost everybody has a couple of apps on their phones to spend five minutes playing the odd game. It's brought everybody in the world into gaming. People that may have been too old to enjoy the first wave of games when they were in the arcade are discovering them once again. And, as technology increases, I'll be really interested to see how far casual gaming can be pushed and stretched to see what its capabilities are. I think casual gaming is one of the least served markets. There's so many potential users and the games however are of such poor quality. The games are often free using in-game purchases that put off many casual gamers when they know that at some stage they need to pay quite a lot of money to get ahead. The business model of the arcade game was to make games so good people would just keep coming back. While casual games just want to be addictive they really just want to drain your bank balance. My best analogy is one of those shows that leaves every episode on a cliffhanger just to get you to come back, compared to the type of TV show that's just so compelling you have to make sure you watch it every single week. There's a market, I think, to make casual games into great games in the classic sense and move away from the freemium model, but time will tell where it goes. Furthermore, I think streaming games will become more commonplace and largely become the most popular form of gaming. If it's done right, game streaming will bring us back to the early form of social gaming. The game quality might not be as good, and there might not be the depth there, but the games will return to an earlier form, where the stories are smaller, the budget's smaller, and the games will spark huge interest for a while before fading. It's a lot easier to make a blockbuster game everybody plays, when it costs an Apple Arcade subscription of $7.99, or a £3.99 game on your phone, compared to a £300 or £500 console and £60 a game. The other thing we could mention in the future of gaming is VR gaming, but we talked about it in its own episode, so for now that's the end of our story. Video games of course have a longer history than where I've left it, but we leave it where I think most people will become more familiar with its story. So we've seen in this episode how crucial games have been throughout our history. They've been played in every civilization on earth, in every culture. Some have gone further than one culture and been played around the world. For many, the prospect of playing a game has interrupted the tedium of their lives. Work and drudgery, just seeing so that few hours you can lose yourself in a game, competition or sociable activity. Whether that's the chess cafes, gambling backgammon dice or bridge, or down the arcade, or playing some sort of video game at home. Games remain a vital part of our life, in whatever way that may be. Just that 30 minutes a day you spend on Candy Crush or Call of Duty at night might be the break you need every single day. For that reason, games are listed at number 64 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.